expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. It is at hand, episode 149 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where much like what happened to the Atlanta Falcons, the whole world is turning upside down. Go fuck yourself, asshole. <laughs> and why should I do that? Because I'm a diehard Falcons fan, and that was... What happened Sunday was just fucking depressing. I don't want to talk about it anymore. So how many bowls of feelings have you consumed since Sunday? Enough to pretty much fill an entire Demogorgon's body with a soul. Well, the, the, well, the Demogorgon is the least of the problems coming up based on what we saw, but I'm James with him alongside. He's still depressed and still getting over his sickness, Nick Pataglia, the Merc with one arm. and Yeah, man, you know, outside of the fucking Falcons. How the fuck do you blow a goddamn 25-point lead? How? Outside of that, we did get a nice little trailer for season two of Stranger Things. James, go ahead before I flip the fuck out again. Well, what we do know for sure... The only thing I think we really know for sure is that it's coming out on Halloween this year. Other than that, we see a lot of crazy stuff and a big friggin' spider-like the world is ending monster. Yeah, the Duffer Bros got, I'll tell you what, this Stranger Things got a bigger budget. I, oh, I, yeah. I mean, just some of the things we see. But let's take it to the beginning, of course. We get the vintage 1980. That is a real 1980s. Ego commercial from the ni- from 1980, yep. and if you notice closely, the boy it's talking and it talks about a six-legged monster spider thing, green and purple, whatever. And then we see kind of that amalgamation at the end with Will when he looks outside that door. But you know what's interesting is you see this, and this takes place pretty much less than a year, about 10, 11 months since. Yeah, right about one. 10 months. Yeah. So, question is, where is Eleven? Okay, when are we going to see Eleven? Apparently, there, you know, this new girl Max is coming to the fold as well. What's her role in all this? And, of course, what's up with Will Byers? Yeah, and, you know, if you look at the Ghostbusters thing, you know, you see the kids riding their bikes, right? Right. And we don't see the whole group. No. But what we do see, if you look really close, is there's four of them. When you see them in the Ghostbusters right. costumes. Right. So know is that fourth. Max? I think it's Max. But here, and here's the thing. This is a, a certain... I'm not saying it's going to fall into this pitfall, but go with me on this one. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Hangover movies. Okay. And the problem with the Hangover movies was we never got to see Doug go on the adventures of the, the other guys. No, we on. did not. So my fear is that in this season, we're not going to see... I understand he's still fucked up from the Upside Down, but we're not going to see Will... Involved as much with the gang's activities as I think we hope to see, and and that's going to be the key thing too. I think is how much where's Will at? Is Will actually right. part of the group now, or is Will just kind of after what we saw at the very right. tail end of the the finale last season? Is he just a different kid now? Is he a different dude? Do they have? I mean, maybe there's a falling out or something, or maybe they're like Will's changed. We don't want to not hang out with him anymore, but things are weird. It now. could be because you know, again, it you know, it takes place less than a year from season one, so it could be Will still, of course, tethered to the upside down. So he's still kind of, he's still in the middle there. You know, he's not fully upside down, but he's kind of like tilted sideways at yep. this ninety degree angle. You know. Yep. So I mean. I think that he—it's—he's going to have this whole season. I think it's going to be about him not being able to differentiate the real world from the upside down. Really, and, he's gonna, and I think part of it, as we saw in season one, at the end when he spits out that thing into the sink, which could be the big spiral thing. We don't know. Wow! Imagine yeah. how big of a thing yeah. that would be. Yeah, he's a growing boy. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that there's going to be a part of him that's going to keep a lot of shit secret from them. Yeah, and I mean, well, think about it. Think about being in that position and. Trying to let everybody know the world is fine and the world is not fine right. at all. And could this be, I mean, is the upside down starting to take over? Is there, because Will was brought back and how long he was there, Was there is there like a fissure now where there's something where you can't stop the out, the upside down from coming into the real world right. now? Could it, could it be how they got Will out in the end of season one and what happened to the whole lab experience at the end of season one? 
you know, and, and what happened at the lab itself. Again, could there be that fissure? Could there be a way? What I like about this, too, is if you, you know, I'm somebody who, of course, loves Stephen King or anything else. So when I saw this, you see that big spider-looking creature, and you see that, that mist. I'm like, oh, yep. my God, that's reminiscent of Stephen King's The Mist. Yep. And of course, for people who don't know much about that, it's a whole kind of uh, – it pretty much takes place, uh, and it's pretty much about this real world – it's pretty much a real-life kind of uh, – urban legend myth if you will that you know monsters are hidden within mists and that's how they kind of cloak themselves so could that be a thing could that be a kind of a reference and a pull from that you know some other things as well that we saw uh you know we see 11 for a little bit we don't know again what her reaction how involved she's gonna be in this season yep but it's gonna be interesting to see a character i'm actually interested to see what's gonna happen is why on a writer's character because if, if Will is still like this, if he's drawing these big monsters and he's whatever and you know how Winona's character was throughout that whole season, what's her mindset going to be like? Is she going to break forth even further? I can tell you right now that as a parent, if, if I'm Joyce Byers, I'm not letting anything go that my kid does. I'm, I'm keeping locked on every – even 10 months later, right. I'm locking on everything that's going on with my kid after this – whole traumatic experience so if he's starting to draw weird stuff again something right. like that uh, you, I would start to wonder man so I think that that's a good point I think it's going to be very interesting to see where she's at and even Hopper as well I mean because he got really close with Joyce during the right. whole thing and and how close is he with the family and he's obviously he's got some sort of role now we don't really know what it is they don't hint at it in this trailer either because we only see him for a hot second too so what is his role now in all of right this? right and remember hopper was he did go deep into that like he remember yeah. he left the egos for a lot like he, it's kind of one of those things where him and joyce know what went on what really happened of course it's gonna be i can't think of the guy's name but it's gonna be his he's a pretty much new antagonist for the season and his whole thing is what happened in the first season didn't happen. He's, you know, the government guy yep. saying, you know, whatever. Yep. But now you're bringing this guy, you know, this town of Hickory. But again, you're bringing the whole world aspect. Is the world going to be affected by these monsters? Is, you know, is the Upside Down going to draw closer to the entire Earth now? Because you know? the, the tagline was, the world, world is turning upside down. Not this little town, the world. So it would just be very interesting to see exactly where they decide to go with it. Before we go on to what we're reading, quick question. You grew up in the 80s. I, of course, was born in 88. But you have more experience with this. When you saw their Ghostbusters you know, uh, uniforms and their costumes, being a child of the 80s who had to use rubber bands and bed sheets, what was your reaction? The, the, the plastic, like, Mylar costumes were real back in the 80s. I will say that my mom did a fantastic job. We've talked about this in Halloween episodes before. Making me costumes, like, I had, a, I had a legit really good Robin costume. But as good as my mom was, you're not going to get it, like, factory direct like <laughs> these kids had. The logo alone, I'm like, man, if we could have had that back in the 80s, then that we would have been doing something. There were some. I ha, I did see some really good costumes, but at the same time, let's just get across right now that that is not the norm, and that is very much due to an increased budget <laughs> for season two of Stranger Things. The plastic Hulk Hogan costume happened. All I could say is that it happened. Well, coming up next, we have two new comics this week. Stay tuned. More down nerdy is coming up next. Hey, this is Patrick Schumacher. And Justin Halpern. We are the showrunners of NBC's Powerless, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, boys and girls. We pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, you know, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about Steve Orlando's JLA and how he's piecing together the team one by one. Of course, every character pretty much has had their own arc, their own series so far leading into this JLA number one rebirth that I'm going to review this week. You know, Killer Frost had hers, Ray had his, uh, you also have Vixens as well, and, and the Adams, so on and so forth. And now it's here. The team is assembled and now they're ready to throw throats already. <laughs> well, I mean that didn't take long, especially with the no. cast of characters that now, he's got I will there. say this. There are something I didn't expect going into this is that I kinda of told you this off air. This actually ties into the Justice League su- versus Suicide Squad limited series. Oh. So, like the whole Killer Frost and why Batman you know, recruits her and stuff like that, and the whole Lobo thing. 
You know, so so if you're reading this, you're like, well, how did Lobo get here? Well, it's explained how he's there in Justice League. It's versus not just Suicide random. Squad. No, it's not. So if if you want to go back and reread that limited series, it was a great limited series, mm-hmm. and then go into this after you read off course all the uh, spinoff titles, if you will, leading into this. Then by all means, go ahead. So this first issue, of course. Written by Steve Orlando, Ivan Rice does the pencils, inks are done by Joe Prado and Eau Claire Albert, and Marcelo Maiolo is the colors, and Clayton Cowles does the lettering on this. And I will say this, first of all, with the art, again, if you've seen the art and just all the other stuff Steve Orlando's been doing lately leading up to this, it's pretty much the same. It's beautiful. It's detailed. Rice, it's, yeah, Rice is really good. It's, it's really colorful, and it's really vibrant, does a really, really great job as well. That's one thing I like that a lot of the DC books uh, are doing, is that they all kind of have that same kind of look and feel and tone, and it's not like, oh, you can't differentiate one comic from another, it's just, you know, like we talk about with Dynamite books, how they look and stuff like that, it's a certain style, which I like a lot. But going to the story, so as I said earlier, the, the team is pretty much, for the most part, getting put together, is put together in this, but there's still bits and pieces of, remember, at the end of certain issues and also at the end of Justice League versus Suicide Squad, they kind of, certain people go their own ways, Lobo goes his own way, and so on and so forth. So Batman and Killer Frost are pretty much the first two. So Batman is kind of like, I had to put this team together. Now you're probably wondering, well, why is JLA getting put together? Well, Batman makes it clear. He says, listen, there are humans on this earth, and they need a team of people who are humans, who they can actually believe in, not gods, you know, not Wonder Woman and you know, metahumans and stuff like that. People who they can actually see and kind of sympathize with. And maybe they won't be too quick to turn on as well because they're not gods. They're actually human beings. So he does this. And what I like about this too is the whole recruitment process. It's kind of like a ladder thing. Or it's more like when you hit, like a mousetrap, for example. Like the boot hits the ball. The ball hits this. So it's like you have Batman and Killer Frost and they recruit this person. The person they recruit recruits this person. That person that person recruit recruits the next person. One of the greatest so board games ever, by the way, Mousetrap. But Pre- go on. Pretty much. But, I mean, when you get to this, you get the whole typical, yeah, you know, there's certain people in this group that are, of course, going to be kind of that loose end, if you will, that kind of like butting heads in terms of, you know, this is a new team and is there going to be butting heads with one another? But really it makes it interesting because as this goes forward, and what I like that Steve does is he actually makes, he does already with, with the spinoff books before this one, but he really, really in this book gets you interested in the series outside of this main JLA arc. And it, like talk about the ad of Rebirth and, and Vixen and everything else like that. Like you want to read these. Not, and you don't feel like you're tied down to hat like, oh, i got to read these. No, you want to read these, which I like. Right. And the way that he writes it, the way that he makes... Killer, like he gives Killer Frost great emotion in this, and there's scenes where Killer Frost has to be like, see, I'm not gonna lie, seeing Batman defend Killer Frost is amazing. It's weird, but you, if you've seen what she's gone through, and almost, I'll, I'll even go back like a year and a half, right? What she's gone all gone through over like the last year and a half in the in the DC Comics universe, even going back to before Rebirth, it's it's a lot, and it, she's changed. And a what lot. I'll say is this: is that you know, before I give my rating, what I'll say is what I like about this book the most is that not only is this a very diverse cast of characters I'm talking about from backgrounds and everything else that makes them so diverse, being diverse actually means something to this, whereas you see a lot of people say, well, let's have diverse people because 2017, let's be diverse to be diverse. This actually has meaning to it, like, you know, there's a reason why this person is here and stuff like that. And, and honestly, like with, with the the Adam, Ray Palmer is gone. You know, so it's kind of like, well, his, we have his assistant now. So what kind of roles he can play? So it's kind of like really going forward that you have some people who it looks like it's gonna be they're gonna be led by Vix and this team. But it looks like pretty much from the beginning, uh, this is a thing where everybody kind of has their own worth. And, and we're going to find out more as the series goes on. I love this first issue. I, I love that Steve gave everybody a, a reason to be there. It wasn't like they just, again, just had diversity. It actually matters that these people are in this as well. And I think it's a great reflection of where uh, we, not to get political, but where we think society want to go and stuff like that. So I think it's a nice way and a nice kind of the book we need right now in terms of of who's in it and stuff like that. So this is a definite pull for me. I mean, it makes sense, especially, I mean, if you read all the tie-ins, like you said, that makes sense in this, and it just makes you care about all these characters and gives you reasons 
why they're there and why they were chosen and the whole Ray Palmer thing. That's not even a spoiler. You know why? Because it ties directly into right. the original Rebirth uh, issue. Also, real quick, one thing I like that Steve does is at you at the end of the book, there's like, coming up next on JLA. So it yeah, gives I you like a nice that. little That's tease cool. in the beginning. It's very throwback well. in that regard. Very throwback. So what'd you do this week, Well, sir? I mean, speaking of things that we've been talking about for good reason, I mean, I think Divinity 3, the Stalinverse from Valiant, is something that we've oh, been yeah. talking, talking about for good reason. I mean, you want to talk about tie-ins. Well, let's dive into another one. It's Divinity 3's Shadow Man and the Baden for New Stalingrad, which is written by Scott Brian Wilson. Robert Gill does the art, colors by Andrew Dollhouse, and David Sharp does the letters. Now, as far as this book goes, it kind of starts out with a riot. And let's just say the reason for the riot... Uh, you want to talk about something that I don't care who you are, or again, like you said, not to get political... I don't care what side of the aisle you lean on. When you see what happens in the beginning of this book, yeah. you're going to be angry. Okay. You're going to be really angry. And there's a ri- and of course, you know, we're talking about Soviet Union taking over America. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you go back and, you know, read up on the Stalinverse and other reviews that we've had on some of these books, if you're kind of like, what, you see, what is he talking about? Well, we're talking about the Soviet Union right. ruling the entire world. That's what we're talking about. Right. Well, what happens if the U.S. lost World War II? Right, exactly. And, there's, and every issue has the timeline of what happened in the Stalinverse yep. and why things are the way they are. But, I mean, of course, you've got Jack, who is Shadow Man. Yep. You know, of course, you should know that by now. And he, there, there's this riot going on. He's like, I want to bring this out, but I can't because if I do and they get it, what's going to happen? It's too strong. And there's such good imagery in this book. And, I mean, just from everybody involved, from the writing and the art, which is very good. Of course, Robert Gill's involved. So, I mean, you should already know that if you're a fan of Valiant right. already anyway. But just the imagery that's given. And it's in, there's so much in this book where it's all about being pushed. Okay, how far are you willing to go? What are you willing to do to be able to win the battle? Because they were talking in this book. It also talks about how you know, like New York's not going to fall; it wouldn't fall easy. We fight back because we're in New York. And then what happens when you start to see the end and lose? So of course, it wouldn't be Shadow Man book if you didn't bring Shadow Man right, out. Okay, right. so I can tell you that much. He brings the Shadow Man out, but what happens after he does? It doesn't end there. Obviously. So what happens after he does is the turning point in this book, which is about midway through. Something happens in the middle of this book that is a huge turning point, and you're going to see a familiar face or two in this book, okay, that you're not really expecting given what's going on in the beginning. Yeah. Then they throw this at you, and you go, oh, it's on now, and you start to get excited <laughs> until something else happens a few pages later. And let me tell you right now, as if this isn't hard enough to read, but it's such a good series. What happens at the end, and there's a piece of, of dialogue in the end that is so gut-wrenching. Where you can feel like if you were in that moment, you're like, what the hell am I supposed to do? One thing I love that Valiant's been doing with this whole Stalinverse thing is I want to go back to the whole Eric the Exo Man of War kind of arc they've been doing with the Stalinverse. If you've read that first issue and you see him doing all these things for Russia and he's kind of like their hero or whatever, and then to see him go to that camp where he lives, it's like, yeah. it's like, a, it's like a concentration camp, a work camp, and you're like, oh, he's a prisoner. Like, he's doing, he's a soldier. Oh my God. Like, it's those types of like, real world effects that you're like oh my god I thought they were doing it under their free will but holy shit like that's not and it really tears your guts out and there's been a lot of stuff like that in these I'll call them tie-ins for this Divinity 3 and then there's also a little a, a little end story at the end The uh, it's like the birth of Baba Yaga or Baga Yaga or something like that I can't think of it right off Baba Yaga I think that's what it was Papa Shango and, it, and what it does <laughs> actually kind of a little bit a little bit really <laughs> In a weird way, that's kind of close. But then it, it also has Mishka from Divinity oh, yeah. in there, and it, there's a tie-in there. So it's like everything's coming together, even in these tie-ins. Now, you don't need to read these, but you should, <laughs> because <laughs> they've all been so good, and for their own reasons, and the, just the imagery alone, it's, it's a book that you want to rally around, but it also pisses you off so much in a certain respect, so it gives you... One of the things I love about reading this, not only because it's really good storytelling, but because it just pulls you emotionally in so many different directions. I mean, even the bloodshot 
uh, one that we had not too long ago where he's he recognizes magic and certain stuff starts to turn. Not only that, but he likes fucking people up with an axe. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, there's just so much to like about this, and it's almost like you know it's gonna end. And you kind of, at one point you want it to, and then the other point you're like, I want this to go on forever. Right. Because it's such a good story. So, I mean, Divinity 3, I mean, basically any tie-in that you see should be in your pull box already, but this one for sure is Shadow Man. Don't let this one slip through your isn't fingers. It, real quick before we wrap up, isn't it great to have this JLA universe and the Stalinverse universe where, like, all the comics outside the main things matter? Like, do you, and that, and in terms of just you want to read them. Yeah, and it's just frustrating because if I feel like Valiant should be everywhere right now. It should right. be plastered all over every, you know, comic book shop and message board and, and website and, and all these news sites and stuff like that. I'm like, why aren't you talking about this enough? Should it be every other article? No, not necessarily. But these are good books, and this is a good story, and it's not even out of nowhere. If you read Divinity 2, that was a really good story as well. What they decided to do is take this and multiply it by 10 and make it an even better story. So everything that's tied into this so far has been great. Go back and read all the older stuff if you haven't yet, and add this one to your pull box as well. And there you have it. Two pulls this week, and I did JLA number one. James, you did, of course. The Battle for New Stalingrad, Shadow Man number one from Valiant. And that's going to do it for what we're reading. But come next, FX. Well, they've taken their swing at the X-Men. It's Legion. Our review of the first episode of Legion is come next on a Down Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Peter J. Tomasi, writer for House of Penance, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Seems like we've been talking about this show coming forever, and now it is finally here X-Men are back on TV, and as for FX's Legion, and Nick, the first thing I have to say about this is, what the hell did we just see? Well, apparently I didn't see the entire show because FX, I I got this off my chest real quick, okay? So we were going to, we have to review the show, of course, Legion on FX. Now, I don't have cable, so I have to watch it on the FX.com. Well, apparently... You need a TV subscription to watch the pilot, but they say FX is like, no, no, we got gotcha. you. We're gonna give you a trial thing. Unfortunately, the trial thing is, hey, we have a show whose premiere is like an hour and five minutes, but you're only gonna get to see an hour of it, possibly. Well, actually, you know what? Wait, we have to add commercials in there. They're about two minutes and thirty seconds a piece, a lot, and, and broken up around seven breaks, so you're getting, you know, fourteen minutes of commercials in there as well. So pretty much, all you saw about. 40 fucking, like 45 minutes of this goddamn show, pretty much. Yeah, that sucks, man, because I didn't even think there was that many commercials when I was watching it live. So it was I'm... like seven, eight breaks, dude. So I, I, the last part I saw was when he was in the... I'm, I'm thankful that you saw the whole thing, so you brought to speed on what I missed. Yep. But, I mean, I got... So I mean, I, I'm here, it's like, okay, he breaks the lamp in the basement, and then he sees Aubrey Plaza's character, you know? It's like, then it just ends. And I'm like, what the fuck? So to FX, I just want to say this. If you want people to have, you know, cable subscriptions or like that to watch your shows, that's fine. But at least make the pilot available in its entirety for people to watch. At least just a pilot or at least the first three episodes. That's all I want going forward. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, we need to grow up a little bit and that we need to start realizing that cord cutters are important. And yeah. especially if, I mean, you're going to have apps... That's fine, but you're right. I mean, if you want to make it ad-heavy, which I will say this, Marvel's guilty of this on ABC as well. If you don't see an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. live and you want to watch it on the ABC app, you better sit down and buckle up, son, because it's going to take you about an hour and 25 minutes to watch an hour-long show that's usually, once you cut out the normal commercial breaks, it's 45 minutes. 45 minutes, yeah, because that's what it is on Hulu. I'm you know, telling you, dude, an hour and 20 minutes last time I'd watched S.H.I.E.L.D. on the app. But going back to Legion, let's talk about, of course, what this show is about. As you said, you know, what the hell did we see? And, of course, this takes place with a character named David who is in a mental institution, but there's more to him than meets the eye. Yeah, there's really more than him that meets the eye. But the problem is, and the one thing that I loved about his character is, is that he doesn't know what's normal and what isn't. He doesn't know if he has powers or if he's just crazy. He just, uh, it seems like he really doesn't understand whether because of what he thinks or what people have told him, 
what's really going on and what's real and what isn't. And I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, you want to talk about a show that captures the mental health aspect of an insane asylum and right. getting inside the mind of somebody who at least thinks they're crazy. Man, did they do a good sh- good job with that. They did, and they really, I think it was a lot of it, you know, come from a cinematography aspect, a lot of it I think had to do with the use of camera work, I think a lot of it came with the lighting as well, and what I liked about this show is that, as you said, he doesn't know if he's crazy, he doesn't know if he has powers, because we've seen time and time again with things that have to do with mental asylum that they might, for the most part, show one way, but then realization is like, Oh, yeah, the bed really wasn't floating. You were just lifting it up and then throwing it down on the ground and breaking it in half, you know. So, I mean, it's just, you know, that that nice balance. It knows how to tightrope itself and, and kind of make you think. And, if, boy, does this make you think because if you look down for a second, you are lost. Yeah, it's like was, a Game of was, Thrones level. Yeah, I was texting you that when I was watching it. I said, dude, I literally looked down to, like, get a pen for 10 seconds. I looked up, and it took me a good 5 to 10 minutes to figure out what I missed and where I went wrong, because you have to absolutely pay attention to every little second, every little subtle detail. But I got to say, one thing that I didn't think they'd be able to do as quickly as they did is develop the relationship between him and Sid. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, there was something, man, did they make you care about both of them and their relationship together so fast because it was so deep, even though like he couldn't touch her and all that stuff, and we thought it was because that was her quirk, being in the mental hospital. We find out later that it's way more than that, but, I mean, man, did they develop that relationship great. Well, I, well my first thought about her was, when he, she's like, don't touch me, I thought, I, my first thought was, is she like Rogue? Yeah, that was where, my first thought, too. Yeah. Where, where, where does she absorb their life force or their powers or what have you? When she touches them, is that why? But then we find out, well, what happens is when you touch her, and this is a spoiler-filled review, of course, uh, when you touch her, you, you, body, you switch bodies, you know, and, and so that's how... And there's this giant depth charge-like explosion, yeah, too. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that causes everybody to die, including Aubrey Plaza's character, who was, I think it was, she was pretty funny, I, I thought, you know. She was manic as hell, too. It was great. Right. She was so jittery, and I mean, she played it so, so well. She played it so, so well. But, I mean, that's the thing. So, it's like, that's how he gets out of, David gets out of the mental institution because it's that body switch thing. But then, you know, you go forward into the show. And what I like is you have this whole, I don't know if really it's a government agency or what, it's just the doctors. But they're like, hey, let's find out if this person has powers or whatever and stuff like that. So, could this be possibly, because, remember, this is just one episode. So, we don't know if people know really about mutants yet. Could this be maybe, not the beginning, but kind of like mutants rearing their head again in, in society, you know? Yeah, we, don't really know, we don't really know when this really takes place for the most part. That was one of my criticisms of the show, actually, is that I'm sitting there the entire show almost thinking, okay, what time period are we in? Or have we been switching time periods this whole time? And they just didn't seem to be able to tell us, okay you're in the 80s, or you're in the 90s, or here's where you're set. And I guess maybe that doesn't matter, but at the same time, when you're doing a lot of flashbacks and things like that, and you're trying to find out the timeline of, of okay, when was he in that house, and when was he, or in our apartment, or whatever, and when did he, when did everything mess up in the kitchen, and when did, I assume, his wife or girlfriend, when did she leave him, or something like that. No, that was his sister. That was his sister? That was his sister. Was his sister. I, remember, I couldn't even tell. I couldn't get a clean shot of her. Well, because remember when he, well, because remember he, when he knocks on her door and he's with the trick or treaters and she brings him in the house and the guy walks, he's like, holy shit. And she's like, you remember my brother, Dave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, so yeah, that's his sister. But But I mean, not knowing when that happened, that was my, that was one of my only real criticisms of the show is there wasn't really a good timeline. Well, I think that because I think you look at how, well, and it's a, it's a fair criticism because. When I first saw her, I, when she's, you know, it's like, it's your birthday, and she's visiting him in the hospital, I thought that, like, that was his mother, because, or, like, his so did I. Or something, yeah. because, well, because of the way that she was dressed, and the way that her hair was, it was very, like, nine, it was very, like, hairspray, 1960s, you know, hair, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's just, that's what kind of caught me off guard, and yeah, of course, you know, he's getting interrogated, and you see, like, this, you know, tech, they're hooking up to him, but it looks like it's from the 70s, but yet... You know, you, it, it's just weird. Yeah, they don't really pin and down. Then, and then I mean, we, I mean, let's, let's admit, 
timelines have not been the X-Men franchise's strong suit. No, that's true. That's very <laughs> so, true. So, so I mean, you know, it, it's who knows? Maybe it's just an amalgamation of everything. Maybe it's just a maybe it just takes on a fucking Earth where like just shits all together. There's no time. Maybe time's not a thing. I don't fucking yeah, know. Yeah. See, that's the thing about the show is that there's so much depth to it. That, yeah. you, that sometimes you're like, okay, what the hell is going on? And, and you have to really think about it. And that's not a bad thing. I'm definitely not saying it's a bad thing. If anything, it's a good thing that it makes you think. And it's not just action, 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 action. But there was definitely plenty of action in the show as well. There, there really was. And a lot of it was, of course, doctors and just, you know, kind of guards, if you will, restraining David when he's freaking out and doing things and just stuff like that. But there's a scene that really pointed, that really like caught my attention. This is really when the show truly grabbed me was when David's being interrogated by that man and he freaks out and he jams the the pen telepathically in the guy's face and just blows up the entire interrogation room. I'm like, holy shit. But again, it brings back to that thing of, is 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 that really a power or is it more you know him just freaking shit out you know who knows who knows maybe at the end of the season we'll see him he's just in the corner in a straitjacket drooling who knows i think that he has no idea what he has but other people think they do i think that these guys that were interrogating him they know what his power oh, is yeah. at least they think they know and then you know, cut to, again, spoiler-filled at the end with uh, Jeannie Smart's character, Melanie Bird. They seem to think that they know and, and how powerful he is and there's a war and you might be the most powerful one of all and yada, yada, yada. So it's all. I think it's all going to be about discovering what the hell he can actually do. And he even admits, whatever this is, I can't control it. So I think trying to control it will also be a theme going forward. I'm not sure how many episodes in the first season, but from what... It's eight. Okay, so from what my guess of the how the season's going to turn out is that the first season's going to be him finding out about these powers, and then the second season's going to be him. Okay, I know what I am now. Let's just move forward. Yeah, I think that hopefully that's it anyway. And I mean, in eight, in eight episodes, that's going to be a little bit difficult to do because I mean, you don't want to rush it, but at the same time, I guess you don't want to beat it to death either. But I mean, I, I really one of the characters that that I was definitely drawn to was uh, Rachel Keller's character Sid. I think that. She did such a great job because she starts out as this zero fucks given kind of, right. you know, kind of patient and like, what if we're not all insane? What if this is just what makes us who we are? And I'm like, damn, that's deep. I like that. And then <laughs> that scene, the one of the scenes that grabbed me was when they're looking outside and she says, if you unfocus your eyes, you could see yourself outside, but inside. And then when they kind of like do the whole through the window kiss kind of thing without touching each right. other, I'm like, man, that is just a beautiful beautiful scene i mean like i said i love that this show makes you think i love how cerebral it was it definitely is different than other things you're seeing on on tv right now i did get kind of a mr robot vibe in in a sense at certain points i'm like well is this all going on in his head or is this really happening and then of course you find out at the end of the show that it's really happening there's a lot of interesting characters here a lot of unanswered questions. I still think the timeline thing does bug me a little bit. I kind of need to nail that down because I do think it's important. And I think that it's something that I hope that just because this is the first episode, they didn't really feel like they wanted to focus on that. But I hope we get a little bit of an idea of where we're at because the technology around, like you said, in that room, what they were hooking up to him, to me that matters, especially in this sense. So because of that, I think I have to go with eight humans stuck in a wall out of ten. Even though it's set in a mental institution, it doesn't, in a sense, confuse you too much as to what's going on. It gives you a – you feel like you have a certain grab on things. Even if there's times where you don't feel like you do, there's something that happens immediately that you're like, okay, I, I get what this is all about now. And I like that it's just not too smart for its own good. And I also like, again, in terms of the writing, that it just doesn't go too deep into things. Like You don't need to know the nuts and bolts of everything and this gives you enough uh right in the middle there to find that happy medium in terms of the writing to make you uh, when you're watching this you're like okay it's not just going on and on and on it's not killing the pacing it's like okay i know this enough next and stuff like that uh in terms of cinematography i thought it was great i thought that that helped add to just how crazy some of the patients were in that hospital and just the 
camera angles and just the, the the speeds they were using on that. The lighting was great. The effects I felt were pretty damn good as well. Uh, so overall, this was a show I was kind of worried about because the reason why is because we have attention of whenever everybody a mass amount of people love something, we tend to hate it. So for some odd <laughs> yeah, reason that's or true. another, that's true. So I'm like, oh god, I hope I don't dislike this, but. Again, from what I've seen from the pilot, uh, I'm going to be watching the show when it hits Hulu. Uh, at, you know, if it's like six months or a few months after the season's over with, I'm going to be sure it's a marathon that's on Hulu when it does hit. I'm going to give this eight out of ten pills in the cup. All right, that's fair. I think that that's fair. Make sure you take them daily. Exactly. And coming up next is Nerd News, and boy, oh boy, do we have a plethora of it. Hey, what's up? This is writer Sam Humphreys, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds, we go around the castle and we see what's trending because it's time for what, James? Nerd! 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 And our first story came as a bit of a surprise to us because Netflix, you know, they have a lot of original entertainment on their on their streaming service. And they said, you know what, we want to make at least 50% of our stuff original content. Well, goddamn, they announced, guess what? Coming this year, 2017, an animated Castlevania show is coming. I want to thank io9 right now for spotting that in buried deep in a press release. And it's funny that they did that because it's almost like Netflix is like, ah, this is kind of an afterthought. Not many people are going to really lose their shit about this. You're wrong because the second that people found out about it, it was everywhere, and as a matter of fact, it's gonna. Addy Shankar is gonna be involved with this, of course. You remember that it was part of Dread, and even that gritty Power Rangers uh, right. fan film that came out was part of that as well. So I gotta tell you, getting somebody like that involved in a Castlevania series, animated or not, loving this idea. Now there hasn't been. Now they haven't confirmed this yet, but pretty much it, it's out there. So it's kind of like because I mean Shankar was was hinting at this as well. For some time, and, and so it's just thoughts of being out there. We don't know if it's going to be live action. My guess it's going to be animated because of just the oh my god, the budget would they would have to do if it was live action. Holy shit, just playing the games in general. But I mean, it'd be pretty awesome, you know, just to see what happens. And and so uh, I'm pretty excited about this man because I mean, this is what we want. When Netflix is like, hey, we're going to raise your subscription up a buck or two, and we're going to put more original content on there. We want this type of content. We actually have a little bit of breaking news right now as we speak where Shankar has confirmed that this is indeed happening. And not only that, a season two is also already planned for 2018 as well. So this is happening and it looks like they're in it for the long haul. Exactly, man. So, I mean, again, we can't wait to see what it's going to be like. Hell, I can't wait to see a first trailer for this thing. What are you, really quick, what are you hoping that you to see when, when a trailer pops up? I mean, my first reaction, honestly is I don't care, and that's a legitimate, excited fan reaction, because I just, this is something that I was like, it was like a no-brainer, like, why the hell aren't we doing this kind of thing? Why haven't we got to Castlevania? I want, more than anything, I'm not even sure I need to know anything about what the show's about, I want that imagery, I want the, the candelabras, on the walls i want the you know give me the give me the chain whip and all these visuals and stuff that's what i want for me it comes down to the music because castlevania has i think one of the best soundtracks in gaming ever so you get that music in there oh with some beautiful animation it's going to be fantastic well speaking of things that are beautiful animation in a sense you know disney has a star wars land and pandora as well to take on avatar well we found out hey this is when they're opening. So Star Wars Land is going to be opening in 2019. And as far as Pandora, it's set to open up an Animal Kingdom in May of this year, actually. Yep, California, here we come. Because you're <laughs> yes. not going to want to go to Star Wars Land. I mean, seriously. I mean, Now, we've been waiting for news on this for a while. Let's face it. I mean, they announced that they were going to be doing this at D23 in 2015. Here we are sitting at 2017 going, where the hell is my Star Wars Land? And now we know exactly when we're going to get it. Problem is, for me, 
How big is this going to be? Because there are several different lands, per se, that you could create here, unless you're creating small pockets well, of everything. Well, it's, it's – well, well, here – well, I'm going to answer that right now because it's going to be 14 acres. <laughs> there you go. So that, that should be plenty of room. But here's the other thing. Can, can we have Hoth in California? Can we, can we create that somehow? I mean, I mean, having lived in California, um, they do have places where they do make artificial snow so people can go sledding and stuff. Well, have, you guys in California wear parkas when – it's like 65 degrees anyways <laughs> it's not like you don't have that stuff available to you true true but i mean yeah i think we can but i mean you know you got pandora which is of course the take on james cameron's avatar and they there was a video that was released a couple of weeks ago of hey here's the behind the scenes here's what we've crafted so far and it looks beautiful I mean, you have these floating islands yeah. i wasn't a fan of the james cameron movie for a variety of reasons but I mean, it looks goddamn beautiful. Putting it in Animal Kingdom makes so much sense. It really does. And I mean, being able to make that almost like these, a side attraction to your Animal Kingdom, which is already awesome anyway. And it, what it also does, too, and I think that this is brilliant on Disney's part, is it draws people to areas of the park that maybe they wouldn't have necessarily spent a lot of time in before. And so right. if you think like, okay, Animal Kingdom, maybe it's not doing so hot. And I have no figures to back this up. I'm just hypothesizing here. Maybe Animal Kingdom's not doing so well. Let's put the Avatar Pandora Land right next to it because then obviously people are going to drift over into Animal I, Kingdom because they don't want to go there. My first time I went to Disney World in Florida was in 1998, and that's when Animal Kingdom first reopened. Uh, and I got to tell you, man, that dinosaur ride they have, holy shit, that scared the fuck out of me as a kid. I have not been to Disney since, like, the mid to late 80s. You, you haven't been to Disney since, like, Mr. Frog's Wild and Crazy Ride, where it's called first opened, pretty People much. People were still excited about Epcot. Mr. Toad, I should say. People yeah. were still excited about <laughs> Epcot when I went to Disney, okay? Yeah. So it's been a while, but I've got a two-year-old that's not going to be too much longer, and maybe by the time he's really ready to go, Star Wars Land will be open. Who knows? And you can sim in the X-Wing, and they'll be all fine. And maybe they have, like, a simulator where you're like you're, it's that battle with the Death Star from uh, New Hope. So who knows what rides they're going to have. It's going to be really awesome to see the attractions they have, uh, even the shit, even the restaurants they have there as well. But moving on to our next story, you know, we talk about eSports once in a while and how, how big it's growing. Well, let me just say this right now. This story, what happened this week? Literally, I think, wipes away the stigma of esports and the people who compete in them as just, oh, there's just people who sit inside all day and play video games and it's just like that because the NBA, the literal National Basketball Association, is starting their own esports league and they're working with, of course, 2K Sports. And suddenly it all makes sense why ESPN started talking about esports and started kind of diving in with both feet. On esports, because seeing that not only is the NBA going to start this, it's going to be run by the NBA and NBA teams. So this is clearly something that not only is the NBA taking seriously, but they think could be a lucrative endeavor and who could blame them. Right, and of course, you know, Adam Silver said, of, quote, the popularity of NBA 2K with the young and growing esports community provides a unique opportunity to develop something truly special for our fans and the gaming community. So, I mean, you got to look at this too. NBA, in terms of tech as well, has have been really one of the most progressive sports leagues in the world. I mean, they were the first to they fully embrace social media, unlike the NFL, where, you know, teams came and post their own highlights and, you know, and stuff like that, which is bullshit. You know, it's, a, it's truly the most worldwide game. Sorry, hockey. Sorry, baseball. When was the last it time is. you said... But what's the thing is, when was the last time you heard the best baseball prospect coming out of Germany or the best hockey prospect coming out of Africa? I'm just going to say this. They removed baseball from the Olympics. Right. Basketball will always be a part of the Olympics because every, every, every country basically has a basketball team. I do want to give Polygon credit for breaking the story, by the way, so I wanted to give them props right. for that. But... I mean, you just look at this, like you said, and and let's give 2K credit, too, because they've been on the cutting edge of a lot of stuff with gaming, like especially with the custom player where you can put your face on your own player and the story modes that they've had. Probably the most in-depth and interactive of any story modes of any games so far. And I know some games started doing stuff like that after the fact, but... 2K was the ones that really kind of started the whole thing. So I got to give them a lot of credit for that. And who better to partner up with the NBA? Well, yeah, I mean, last February they had a championship for 2K. I'm talking about 2K Sports did, where the grand prize was $250,000. So, I mean, I'm sorry, folks. For those of you who are like esports or for, you know, 
oh, a bunch of pe- you know uh, people who just sit inside and play video games. It's pretty fucking lucrative right now to play video games. Yeah, not only that, didn't League of Legends just sign like a multi-million dollar yes. contract? Yes, they League of Legends did. And plus, League of Legends, there was a story that came out this week that it's the most popular game in 21 states. Not only that, but they're packing arenas. Not just people yes. watching on oh, Twitch. God. They're packing a- arenas worldwide of people that are literally paying money and buying tickets to watch people play league in a stadium. Yeah, I mean, man. Come on. It's time to take it seriously. It's intense, man. And, you know, it's it's just really, really cool to see this this thing grow and to see a league like NBA jumping both jumping with both feet. It's really fascinating. And our final story, James, staying with the video games, deals with Kickstarter. And, well, let's just say funding is not the best right now for yeah. video games. And and you kind of you kind of understand why that is. I mean, if for the first time since two thousand and nine, when funding really kind of started to take off, it's down what five point eight percent. I think the story yes. said according to Polygon. Yep. So I mean, but I mean at the same time you look at it and can you blame them? No, and the, and the thing is, you look at games. A perfect example. Watched a video on this the other night of Money Number Nine and yep. what happened with that. You know, uh, if, you know what happens is. People say, well, here's what I want my game to look like. And it looks beautiful, fantastic, colorful. And then they change what the game looks like. And then they say they put on numerous stretch goals. And they say, okay, well, we need to get to 400000 But then they make $4 million, And they're like, oh, well, we're going to have online multiplayer. We're going to have this. They try to do too much. And then what happens is we put too many stretch goals out there, too many rewards. People don't get the right ones. They don't get them at all. Yeah, don't get them and, at all sometimes. And then when the game does come out, it's a piece of shit. And it sucks. Like, my number nine fucking sucks. Yeah, I mean, I've I think, played I think it. that's it safe to say. It fucking sucks. I think that's it's safe to terrible. say. terrible. It's terrible. And, you know, and then luckily, you know, ukulele is coming out, I believe, in April of this year. But look at a game like Cuphead. Where the fuck is it? Yeah, where on earth is Cuphead? It seems like we've been waiting for that forever. I mean, it looks awesome, but it means nothing if it never comes out. Now, to throw more numbers at you, we had almost the same amount of video game campaigns in 2015 and 2016. But here's the difference. A successful campaign in 2016 averaged $45,360. In 2015, it was $110,962. People are fed up. With donating these Kickstarters and having to wait three or four years for these games to come out, ne- like you said, never getting their their incentives or getting not the right incentives, or the game comes out and it's a piece of shit. All of these things are factoring in, and just think, where do you want to put your money? Plus, you're you're you maybe you get a digital download of the game depending on where your level is. So I'm looking at this graph right now, and you have tabletop versus video games. So video games, just looking at those. 374 2015 were successful projects. 2016 went up to 388. Okay. Millions earned, though. 2015, 41.5 million this year. You know, it was at 5.8% drop. That equated to 17.6 million. That's a huge drop. That's a big, big deal. And I think that people who want to use Kickstarter, not just for video games, but in general, better wake up because so many people, and I'm going to just trash these video game programmers as a former programmer. So many of you start these Kickstarters without being really prepared to deliver your product. I know the whole point is to get funding, to be able to do the work, but if you're just a small group looking for funding to do your game, you better at least have a damn plan of what you're going to do. And the problem, too, is that they they put out these release, these release dates, like, we want to release it at this date. And then they push it back, and then they push it back. Like that's my pro- That's my biggest issue with Cuphead is that they say it's going to come out this year, and it's going to come out whenever, and then they keep on pushing it back and pushing it back. It's like guys, just say it's, you know, will it, it'll come out when it comes out. Like yeah, you, know, you, know what? you know, say you know, at least at least give yourself enough of a, like a two to three year window and say you know what, we want it to be the best game possible. People have given us millions of dollars, or how many millions or how much money they put together. We're going to take our time, make it the best game. We're going to give ourselves a two to three year window, you know. Less, and if it, if it, we don't hit that, then you know what, we'll push it back. And if we can't get to where we is, you know, susceptible to what we want and our standards, we'll just refund everybody. Right, exactly. And that's kind of what you need to do. And as a programmer, I know the bugs happen. I know that when you test shit out, the bugs can happen, and you got to go back and fix them. And sometimes they can be unforeseen and cause problems. But that's why. You need to factor that in when you're given a release date. And guess what? If you give a release date that's way out there 
and you got everything fixed beforehand, guess how excited people are going to be when they find out that it's actually going to come out sooner than you said rather than having to push it back. I don't understand why we've got to try and rush these things to production. I mean, look what happened, a a totally outside of video game example, look what happened when Samsung rushed the Galaxy Note 7 to production. Yeah, people were... fucking exploded. Yeah, people were uh, turning into Two-Face and Harvey Dent. Right, exactly. So take your time, especially in a video game, that you know is going to get criticized heavily no matter what you do, because that's gamers, okay? So take the time... To do it right, and if you promise somebody something in a Kickstarter, you better deliver, because I think that at some point we're going to start to see lawsuits out of this. You imagine if there was an app, though, like the Harvey Dent app, where, like, if its only purpose was you download it, and you, once you open it, and you had to, like, it says, put to your face, and you do, and it explodes, and then, like, half your face is gone. And, like, who would do that? It's like the worst, it's it's literally the worst filter ever, I'll say that. I I wouldn't even download a Harvey Dent coin flip app, just for the fear (laughs) that that might happen. Right. But you know what is happening next? We have Dennis Hopeless on, who is the writer of WWE Comics. He's going to come on and talk about wrestling, Boom Studios' new comic series he's working on, and some other things as well. That's coming up next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Monica Lee, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, normally this is where we'd hit the music, but instead of getting the copyright folks all over our ass, we'll just say, weighing in at none of our damn business is the writer of WWE Comics, it's Dennis Hopeless. How you doing, Dennis? Doing great. Thanks for having me. So, Dennis, when you head in to do a certain book in any existing universe, you kind of go in knowing what sort of a sandbox you have to play in. So, have you ever worked on a book with as many endless possibilities as WWE gives you? But no, it's actually interesting because of I'm so used to doing superhero books where there are like strange corporate restrictions, and strange other book restrictions. But like, you know, people die and come back to life and punch through buildings and all sorts of crazy, you know, inhuman things can happen. And with WWE, it's a little bit different because I'm dealing with sort of normal human beings who can do amazing things, but not fantastic things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I also, whenever, I, I think restrictions make you more creative. Um, and especially with the first arc that we're doing, it's very tied to things that happened on Raw and in pay-per-views the last couple of years. So I'm sort of dancing between the range this, which is really fun and, and uh, allowed for some creative storytelling. And, you know, of course, speaking of storytelling, for decades, WWE has had many different storylines over the years. So what to you not only makes a storyline great, but memorable as well? Yeah, I think that the challenge with being a great wrestler is you have to be good at several different things that have nothing to do with each other. You have to be an amazing athlete who also can, like, you know, really move around and tell a story with your body physically. But then also you have to be able to play a character and... You know, be great on the mic, be good at promoing, uh, be good at, like, expressing real emotion through, like, sort of silly feuds and stuff. The Rock is probably the best one ever to ever do it. Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, he's a good actor uh, who's also really physical, interesting-looking, and amazing in the ring. But if you look at The Rock when he first showed up, like, he had to find it. He had to find oh, the character yeah. that worked the best with his personality. And once he did, it was, you know... You could, you could just see it. You could see that switch flip. Absolutely. Now, speaking of dealing with other factions, the Authority, if you look at them, you obviously give, think of deception and that closed-door kind of operation feel. So what is it like to be able to pull the curtain back on that and actually show fans more of the storyline that they could have only really imagined before? Yeah, I think it's really fun. I think it's really fun to play with uh, that backdoor stuff, especially because our first arc, it's all about you know Seth Rollins, breaking up with the shield and, and doing all of these things in order to get that championship gold. And then once he's got it, he's got to deal with the repercussions of being in the authority's pocket. And we saw a little bit of that, you know, on raw, but it was mostly about, I don't know, a little bit of backstage stuff, but mostly about what happened in the ring. So we get to take that out and like show what it's like to be under triple H's thumb and, you know, dealing with the machinations of the authority, which helped Seth. It helped them, uh, you know, get the, get the belt and keep it. But also manipulated him. He wasn't. He had no power in that relationship. Uh, so it's been fun to kind of flush that out and tell the story behind the story. 
And, you know, Dennis, when I reviewed the first issue a while back, I talked about how Dean Ambrose pulled off pranks on Seth Rollins, how he was kind of a dick to him throughout the first issue. What is it about Dean that makes him that perfect agitator, and how will his antics be amped up as the series moves forward? Well, I mean, Dean doesn't care about anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean he's, he's like... He's like cannonballing on Santa Seth Rollins when he's in the pool. He's pouring drinks on his head. You know, yeah. he just does. He gives zero fucks, pretty much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he had a, he had a feud with Brock Lesnar uh, sometime last year where he just like, threw his body at him, yep. breaking him against this monster he could never defeat. <laughs> because that's what he gets in his head to do. So that's kind of how I write these. Like whatever, whatever he's possessed to do at the moment, he will de- destroy his own body or anyone else's in order to do it. Which is, you know, it's a really fun. That's what made Mick Foley so much fun back in the day. And Dean is like uh, Mick Foley who can still walk. So he's, he's pretty he's pretty in the right. The lunatic fringe element of it is, is a blast. And I'm really excited for our second arc because I get to really dig in and, and get inside Dean's crazy head. Nice. We're talking to writer of WWE Comics, Dennis Hopeless. Of course, issue two going to be at your local shop, available digitally on February the 15th. Now, I got to say, Dennis, we had Aubrey Sitterson on the show not too long ago, and I think that we spent a good 30 minutes off the air just talking about wrestling. So what is it like having a true fan like Aubrey work on this issue with you and bring the Ultimate Warrior into the mix for one of your side stories? I love those side stories. My editors don't show them to me because I think they're, they're afraid they're going to intimidate me. I'll turn my script in late because they're so amazing. So I don't see them until the book comes out. But Aubrey's a good friend of mine. I've, been, I've done his podcast a lot. <laughs> and so I'm really excited to see what he does. He and I have very different sensibilities. Like I like to tell behind-the-scenes character stuff. And Aubrey just likes to tell stories in the ring about people fighting. So I think it'll be a good, a good balance with what I'm doing. And, you know, there have been many factions in the history of WWE. You know, you have The Shield, you have Degeneration X, Ministry of Darkness, Evolution, just to name some other ones. Uh, if you had your own faction, what would you call it? Oh, man, that's a great question and one I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a really stupid last name, so it's got to be Hopeless something, right? I've got a good one. Why wouldn't you call them the Hopeless Few? <laughs> well, there it is. Right? For me. right, because you've got what? You probably have what, like two or three, maybe four other people? Yeah, only it's like the NWO. If you get too many in there, it's supposed to be silly. You got Buff, Buff Bagwell wearing like a, <laughs> an NWO version of that. I find that, like, when it comes to factions, that like three or four is as good. I mean, like, the Brood was three people, Ministry had about four or five, DX was about family. four or five people. Yeah, the Wyatt family, I think, is pretty good right now. Yeah. Yeah, when it gets too big, it's hard. I mean, I love all the Wyatts, but the, when there's more than three of them at a time, it gets a little unwieldy. Right. <laughs> Question is, does Aubrey make it into your group? Oh, yeah, probably. I mean, he, like I said, he, he brings the opposite of what I've got, so I think he's perfect. Plus, that man is more enthusiastic than any human I've ever met in my life. He forces way in anyway. Can you can you imagine if, if <laughs> here's the thing? Imagine if if Dennis had you had your own faction, Aubrey's part of it, and something happened with like the third or fourth people, and they just turn against you, and then you and Aubrey went and did like some Billy and Chuck shit, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a great idea. <laughs> I don't know how that works in comic books, but I like it. <laughs> just you and Aubrey come out like in robes or what, some shit like that, <laughs> some like boy band music behind you playing. I was actually uh, involved in some backhand wrestling when I was in high school. Oh, uh, it was yes. Ex- yes. It's ex- extreme trampoline wrestling is what we called it. Nice. And I never actually got to wrestle <laughs> because I got so I got so excited about it and enthusiastic about it that the other kids got freaked out that someone was going to get hurt. And <laughs> before I <laughs> so did you, have, did you have a ring name or did you just go by Dennis Hopeless? Well, I was, oh my God, what was it? I know my finisher was the classroom disruption. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was a juvenile delinquent, maybe. I don't remember. Well, see, see, like when I, when I did wrestling in the backyard, my friends all the time we wrestle in pools. I would, I had like a double R, or I had a an arm bar, and I had like a double arm DDT. I called the amputator because I have one arm. <laughs> <laughs> My, it's funny. Yeah, my my finisher was the flying knee, which I don't even know how I was going to execute without <laughs> hurting someone. Fantastic. It's probably I mean, a good thing this didn't happen. You never even got the chance. My it's funny. Mine was a double arm DDT as well, and I called it the blackout. 
Well, that's good too. No idea why, but that's what I went with. <laughs> Now, now, Dennis, you were talking about uh, superheroes before, and I've asked this question about superheroes before, but let's change it up a little bit. So who would you put on your professional wrestling Mount Rushmore? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, probably The Rock, Stone Cold, <laughs> Scott Hall, because personally I love Scott Hall. Nice! Uh, nice! <laughs> Uh, Randy Savage. How many people are on that? I think that, I think it's four. So it I think four, I, yeah, I, I so think you're done. I man, Scott Hall uh, would have the greatest Mount Rushmore face too. He, he really does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the deal. You know, you put Macho Man on the uh, on the Mount Rushmore. You know, he has to have like when they chisel on his face, they have to have like enough rock for his hat and his sunglasses as well. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Plus, don't you have to get a hand in there, too? He could never keep his hands away from his face. That's true. He's always on his tiptoes to make himself look bigger, too. I love Randy Savage. <laughs> oh, man. But see, I, mean, I, I would have to put Flair on there somewhere. Oh, yeah. See, I thought I had five. Flair would have been my next one. I was, my, my family was uh, wrestlers for Halloween this year. So one of, I have two-year-old twin boys, and one of my sons was... Dusty Rhodes, and the other one was Ric Flair. <laughs> we bought like a little girl's coat and put feather boas on it and oh feathered it out. And put the Nature Boy in the back. It was awesome. Watch, he, he awesome. Get, I imagine, imagine one of your your son that was Dusty Rhodes when he gets older and they and he's dressed as Dusty Rhodes and they ask him like, "So what does your dad do?" He's like, "I'm a son of a comic book writer. I'm a son of a writer." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really funny when he called me Daddy when he was. Let <laughs> 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 me tell you something, Daddy. I'm a son of a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, there's so many classic wrestlers. So it's like put, do, doing a, a Mount Rushmore is tough. It's like you have, you have Hulk Hogan, you got Andre yeah. the Giant, but then you also you want to throw in some Attitude Era guys as well. You know, like Stone Cold and The Rock. So it's tough. You know, it's really really yep, tough. Therein lies the yeah, challenge. Yeah, it's, it's tough to do four for sure. Going back to the the comics, Dennis, there was a great moment at the end of issue one where Seth Rollins he has this kind of thought of what have I done? Like he has this self-realization about his actions. So without spoiling anything, what are some negative ripple effects that his choices are going to be creating going on in future issues? Well, I mean, he basically loses his entire social group, right? Like he, he lost his, he kicked his friends out and he replaced them with people that, you know, that he, he aren't actually like friends or family. They're, they're work associates that have, you know, that are his bosses and have expectations. of So you're going to see that sort of, descend into this very insular solo life that's difficult while also having to like carry the weight of the company on his shoulders. Uh, and all of that is heading, you know, heading toward the injury we all know that happened and, and the personal repercussions of that. So it's been really fun to, to sort of flesh out the, the non cocky version of Seth Rollins. Cause you know, we've all seen the Seth Rollins who thinks he's the man and the greatest ever. So it's fun to write that like, the quiet moments where he maybe questions that for a minute and, and make the character more relatable. Absolutely. And I mean, this book's really for wrestling fans and non-wrestling fans alike. WWE issue number two is going to be available at your local comic shops and digitally on February the 15th. Writer Dennis Hopeless, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Yo, James, a quick story. When I was younger, I was in sixth grade and we had a fair day. So, you know, we had face painting and you know, games and stuff like that. So I went to the face painter and they said, the person said, you know, I will paint whatever you want. If you want to be your whole face or whatever, I will do it. So I had him literally paint my whole face as Kane's mask. That had to look awesome. It was a bitch to get off, but it looked great. I'm going to say this as non-mean as I can. Who cares? <laughs> I might I might have kept it. That That's epic, dude. It was epic. Well, so you know what else is epic is the WWE comics that have been coming out from Boom Studios. They've been wonderful, a lot of great action as well. I mean, this is one of those things where you knew when it was coming out it was either going to be really good or it was going to be really bad. And But I, even I didn't expect how great that they were actually going to be. And as a huge wrestling fan, 
getting to see more of a storyline that already interested me anyway, now my mind just explodes thinking, oh my gosh, they might do this, or they might do this, they might do this next, they might do this next. There's literally, like I was saying in the beginning, there's endless possibilities, and I just can't wait. This is one of those books that could be like Detective Comics that we're talking about issue 900 in like 20 years. And that's the reason, the reason is because, you know, as we talked about in the interview, there's just, there's such a rich history with wrestling. Like you have, you know, Aubrey's doing the Ultimate Warrior storyline, as you pointed out, and then, you know, you have all these just eras of wrestlers. You know, you could, hell, we might see like a Coco Beware storyline arc. You You never know. You know, I would love to see one on the brood, you know, with Edge, Christian, and Gangrel. I think that'd be very oh, yeah. interesting. You know, we might see something with Eddie Guerrero. Who knows, you know? But the, the possibilities pretty much are endless for if they want to do spinoffs or side stories. Who knows? Maybe Boom Studios has in the pipeline a comic book series for WWE that is just about the Attitude Era. Who knows? I want Monday Night Wars so bad. Oh, God, yes. So bad. Give me some behind-the-scenes on the Monday Night Wars with Nitro and Raw and what was going through Eric Bischoff's head and Vince McMahon. Give me that because, dude, that would be amazing. Or as Goldust would say, Bischoff, Bischoff, Bischoff. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> but that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Dennis Hopeless for coming on and talking about WWE comics with us. But hey, if you want more of us on social media, we're always there. Facebook.com slash Down Nerdy. We're also on Twitter as well at Don Nerdy 757 I'm at Merc with one arm. All, the one is spelled out. I'm also on Instagram at Merc with one arm. Same thing on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Merc with one arm. I try to, to stream games about two days a week, maybe three, at 8 o'clock p.m. And I'm on just the Twitter at James A. Switham, that's W-I-T-H-A-M, because my child won't let me do anything else. You can also <laughs> find us online anytime, downandnerdypodcast.com. Get even more comic book reviews. As a matter of fact, we have an archive of our old reviews where you can find my review of WWE The One Shot, Then, Now, and Forever. Nick's got reviews up there as well. There's just so much going on on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, pass safe comic book reading. Always beg and board your comics.